0: Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. And this week we're joined by one of the most dynamic and innovative members of the U.S. House of Representatives. Ro Khanna was just 27 years old when he entered a 2004 California congressional primary as one of the first challengers to a Democratic incumbent who had voted for the Iraq War. Khanna lost that race, but it marked him as a pioneering, bold progressive. He eventually served in the Obama White House and then took on another Democratic incumbent to win a U.S. House seat in 2016. He's served since then as no other member of Congress, taking on issues of war and peace, corporate monopoly, and the future of the internet and AI technology. Rokana, thanks for being with us on Next Left. Thanks. Congrats on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, Hey, I want to start out with some of your politics. And your political roots go back really far. And your political ideals, I think in many senses, trace back a long way to your grandfather. And it's quite a remarkable story. Why don't you tell us a little about your grandfather?
1: I'm very proud of him. Uh, Amarnath Medyalankar, he... Uh, grew up in Lahore, and he was part of the freedom movement. He worked for uh, Lala Lajpat Rai, uh, who was one of the early freedom movement leaders in India. Growing up, he had a choice whether to start a clothing store, and that's what his parents wanted him to do. And they were very disappointed when he decided not to, because, of course, in India at the time, there was a boycott of any uh, British clothing. And so he started to work for Lala Lajpat Rai, and he used to set up the uh, chairs to before Lala Rai used to address crowds. And then later, of course, he became very involved and in, uh, with Gandhi uh, went to jail for the cause in the 1940s for four years from 1941 to 46, and then becomes a part of India's first parliament uh, when India gains independence. He passed away when I was about nine. I was born in Philadelphia, but we would go often to to India in my in the summers, and he would tell stories, and then after he passed... Of course, he was such a legend that everyone in the family had a story about him uh, and uh, that had a, a remarkable impact on my passion for public service. And, and
0: immigrants, immigrant traditions have fed our politics throughout history. It's, this is not a new thing. But one of the fascinating things is that now so many folks are running for Congress and getting elected. The diversity of our Congress, it's still not what it should be. But, I mean, it's pretty remarkable to have Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and you. And you all have come in relatively recently. I
1: do. And we've all come in perhaps not being the uh, establishment and party's choice. Uh, One of the reasons that's consequential is usually when you have immigrant communities, it's easiest to get elected in where there's large populations of those communities. And they happen to be often in safe democratic seats and so you have to be willing to to question the status quo or the status quo has to be willing to be open to new voices and i think you have now finally a mobilization that has cracked the establishment politics where new voices are emerging and as you pointed out winning it's happening for multiple reasons one Uh, The next generation, the kids of the immigrant communities that came after 1965 opened America to uh, Asia and Africa and so many other countries, now are finally of an age that they can participate. So it took 30, 40 years. Second, uh, social media has democratized, I think, communication and lowered the barriers to entry, to participating. Third, this new generation is deeply progressive, young people in many places, and are open to, to voices. And finally, I, I do have to give some credit. I mean, I don't share all of his politics, but I do think Barack Obama transformed the vision of what was possible in American politics. And I remember my mom literally crying on the phone. I was in California when he won. And I was I was amazed by the emotional impact that had on her. i I never seen her have that kind of emotional reaction. I don't think she did that when I won for Congress or something. But, but I asked her, and she said... He's the first person of color to lead a Western industrialized democracy, a Western nation. Obama's election was not just racial. It was global. I mean, his grandfather was a subject of Kenyan British
0: colonialism.
1: And I think that that dynamic is not fully understood yet. But
0: I I think it was a marker of things to come. What's interesting, you bring your mother in here. Yeah. Because your mom and dad were immigrants. They were. Coming from India to the States. And obviously, the politics is from your grandfather, but also from your parents yes. was real. Because when you were a teenager, you got your first sort of public exposure as a political thinker uh, <laughs> Think challenging, <laughs> challenging the war in Iraq. Right. At least, yes. Right? yes. Well, my,
1: we had a ninth grade English teacher, Mrs. Robb, who challenged us to write get an op-ed published in the, in, in the Bucks County Courier Times or in the local paper. And the uh, columnist was kind enough to publish my op-ed. He said, space doesn't permit the whole th- publication. But now I realize that he probably didn't think the whole thing was worthy of being published. And uh, it had the title, read this 14-year-old's lips, George. And I often joke that I thought back then that the President of the United States really was going to read my op-ed, and now that I'm a member of Congress, I realize that the president isn't going to read even my op-eds now. So, but 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 it gave the sense of of possibility, right? You can be the son of immigrants in a community uh, 99% uh, Caucasian when I was growing up, uh, and still have your voice heard and make that impact. And I I do credit uh, my teachers. Uh, I do credit growing up in Philadelphia. It's a very patriotic place. You take field trips every year to the Liberty Bell and to the Constitutional Hall. And I have said to folks that I believe the American scriptures are the Declaration of Independence, Constitution, Gettysburg Address, Second Inaugural, Dr. King speeches. And the places of worship are probably many of them in Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell, the Constitutional Center. So uh, there was an
0: idealism
1: to American democracy that uh, I had growing up
0: obviously politics was was something real in you because the first i encountered you was 2004 right when you ran one of the first anti-war challenges to a democratic incumbent in the country so we're we're very interested and excited now by folks who have stepped up and sometimes controversially challenged democratic incumbents right you did that back in 2004 Taking on Tom Lantos. Yes. A very honorable man who had a honorable, wonderful record on a lot of areas, but who had been a supporter of the war in Iraq.
1: He had been a supporter of the war in Iraq. He had been a supporter of the Patriot Act. And to take you back to 2004, I graduate law school, go out to California. This is a time where the South Asian community is being profiled. I mean, I couldn't have gone through a metal detector for a year or two without being pulled off for advanced screening. I had a friend who was a law school classmate who was a Pakistani American, whose brother was actually detained and told to go back to Pakistan. So the Patriot Act was a huge part of the challenge. And then this war in Iraq that uh, Lantos had also supported, just the sense that this was the wrong direction. And so I thought, here's, you know, what can I do I would run. I would uh, challenge Lantos. I'd try to run an honorable campaign. Of course, I got crushed, because you have to remember, in 2004, the sentiment against the war hadn't shifted. I mean, this is a few months after Bush's declaring mission accomplished, and I think I lost uh, 72 to 19. But uh, John Nichols somehow found me and did this column on this young man who ran against the war. And after I lost, and a lot of people had given up on me, I used to circulate that column because you had referenced there, I'm just being honest, you had referenced John Kerry's first anti-war run. And I said, see, don't give up on me. Kerry Kerry lost too, and uh, at some point maybe uh, my political career can still make it despite a 50-point beating. I was so shell-shocked by that loss, it, it took me 10 years to muster the courage to ever run again. The other thing I was talking about in that campaign, I mean, I was very passionate about uh, restraint in foreign policy but I was also talking about innovation and entrepreneurship and how do we extend that to to different parts of the country and it's been one of the challenges in my career because uh, critics will say, oh Kana and they did back then and they have throughout is is he too much for business and on the other hand uh, my uh, people in the valley say oh you're too critical uh, about our entrepreneurship and innovation and you don't get what we're doing and part of my career has been trying to find a synthesis how do we figure out what a free enterprise system looks like that actually rewards work and innovation and not one that's just connected for the privileged and the few and that's concentrating wealth where you have uber for example ipoing and six thousand more millionaires created in my area and the rest of the country is wondering what what takes place so i go to the obama administration in commerce because i want to make a a contribution and understand more about how our economy is working and working in uh, different parts of uh, uh, of the country and it's a uh, fascinating experience because i I, I I originally wanted the job because I thought that I would be able to lead our trade missions overseas and help uh, open up export markets.
0: You're really second only to the president, yeah, right? Yeah, You'd exactly. you running everything.
1: Well, I, uh, you know, exactly. And when I didn't get the position I wanted, I uh, was... Overseeing our domestic offices. And it turned out the best thing because I got to go across this country to small towns, to communities, and learn about manufacturing and learn about multi generational businesses. And my book on American manufacturing's resilience came out of that. And my understanding for some of the geographical economic divides came out of my time in commerce.
0: That's sort of one of the under discussed elements of your mission, sort of yes. your vision. You go out to very small towns in Iowa and places like that, and sometimes you bring along all the Silicon Valley right. execs, and you have this concept that if this thing's going to work, they've got to start investing and creating jobs in farm towns and rural communities and, and big cities. Abs-
1: and, and communities of color and inner cities. I mean, they, we can't have all the concentration of wealth in a few places in this country. We've got to create uh, economic opportunity uh, and new industries in communities that feel left behind. Look, most people don't want to move from the community they grew up in. I read somewhere the average American lives 18 miles uh, away from their mother. Uh, My mom didn't like that uh, statistics when I shared that on Mother's Day. I live more than 18 miles away. We live, uh, you know, they're still in Philadelphia. But the point is people are seeing their communities And their concern is not just for them, right? If they're 55 or 60 and they were in mining or they were in a manufacturing industry that is declining, they have a concern about their own economic security. And, of course, they want their pensions guaranteed and they want to make sure they can retire with dignity and health care. But what their bigger concern is, what about their kids? What is going to happen to them? What is, what's the prospect for them? They see their churches losing population, their places of worship losing population. They see people moving out. One person in Iowa said, in a small town, Iowa needs a choice, not just a flight out or a handout. Uh, we shouldn't have a choice where either we have got to have our kids after they graduate high school or college leave or uh, rely on uh, government assistance. They need dignified, meaningful work. The promise of technology was that we were going to be able to do that, that you could now have distributed work. And we need to make good on that. I fundamentally believe that we're in a technology revolution. No one today, I don't think, would say, well, we shouldn't have had the industrial revolution. But there was a lot of pain in that industrial revolution. There were a lot of people who were abused, exploited. We needed overtime laws. We needed unionization. We needed to uh, figure out how to distribute the industrial revolution's gains with equity And we're going through something similar with the technology revolution. Uh, So what we need is the same type of organizing for equity of people who are working in the tech industry and the same kind of distribution of opportunity so everyone can uh, be digitally proficient. doesn't mean everyone needs to be a coder. That's silly. But everyone does need to have access to basic uh, tools of technology to have basic industry to succeed in the communities
0: where they live. And it strikes me that the... The failure of the Democratic Party to talk about this technology revolution in a nuanced, smart way is in part why Donald Trump is president. I
1: believe that to be the case. I mean, I think you have had a lot of these communities say, what happened to me? Let's let me put it a little more starkly. You have all these new people coming in. They're doing really well. Our families, we've been here for generations some of our grandparents or granduncles, we, we died for this country, we, or we risked our lives for this country in World War II, and we've been going back to World War I. Uh, we served. We built the industry that propelled America, and now we feel that we don't have opportunity. Where is our voice? Someone told me this story in Pennsylvania. Donald Trump went and promised in one place that the coal mine was going to reopen, and everyone in that town knew That wasn't gonna happen. Everyone knew that that there was some reason that the coal mine wasn't coming back, whether it had to do with automation or I don't remember the details, but the whole town knew that that coal mine was never gonna open, but they all voted for him. And I said, well, why why would you vote for him if you knew it was a lie? He said, because at least he said something. At least he offered some vision. We haven't had people offer a vision. We've got to offer a real vision for these communities of how they're going to participate in the technology revolution, what place they're going to have, how they're going to have greater opportunity than before.
0: We'll be back after these messages. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine. And right now, we've got a special deal just for Next Left listeners. You can save over 90% on a digital subscription and get digital access to all of our articles for less than a dollar and 50 a month. Or, you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. You can find it at thenation.com/podcasts/subscribe. That's thenation.com/podcasts/subscribe. Every time you support The Nation, it helps us make this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a subscriber. Now it's time for a word about Elizabeth Warren. She may be running third in the Democratic polls after Biden and Bernie Sanders, but she seems to be the clear leader in what we call the ideas primary. For comment and analysis from Katrina Vanden the nation's publisher and editorial director, check out our sister podcast at The Nation, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener, the coolest man in L.A. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Congressman Ro Khanna. You wanted to talk about all this stuff, and so you decided. Well, I better get myself elected to Congress. So, ten years after you ran against Tom Lantos, yes, you come back in California, right, and mount another campaign. You got all this experience now. You've worked in the White House. You've thought about all this stuff. You're you're really on it, yeah. And you lose again. I do. Yeah, and uh, and I I
1: probably deserve to lose that race. Uh, you know the. Uh, the first one I may have deserved to win, just on the not that I was prepared to be on, in, in Congress, but I was right on the issues. It would have been a, uh, terrible for my career to have gotten elected that, that early. And uh, Mike Hondo, who have tremendous respect and admiration for, who was my opponent, uh, after the first campaign, we, we uh, had a conversation. He said, I know, I know I had you beat after you had uh, your list of endorsers. And I said, How's that? He said, Because you were running uh, with all these tech leaders backing you. Uh, and I said, OK, we're going to run with the teachers and the PTA leaders and the nurses. And there are a lot more of those in the district than there are tech leaders. And so it forced me to really reflect. I would have these small group meetings of 10 people, 15 people, and just listen and hear their observations about technology, their concerns about housing, about cost of living, about what, why they felt they weren't uh, getting a fair shake in the economy. And it made me a deeper thinker and it, it made me realize academic vision is part of politics but ultimately it's the humanity and understanding that comes from experience that really i think is is necessary so for me uh, that campaign uh, deepened didn't change my values i was always progressive but it deepened them
0: and it's one of the lessons that i think people don't always it's a hard one to to wrap in that losing can be good for you
1: in, both, in losing uh It can be good in retrospect, (laughs) you know, (laughs) not at at the moment, but it it does. Uh, You know, there's a famous quote from Winston Churchill. I don't you know, obviously had a terrible record on colonialism, so I'm not going to defend him there. But when he lost after World War Two, his wife said, uh, uh, this is a blessing in disguise. And Churchill retorted, well, right now it's very well disguised. So, uh, you know, I after the campaign, it's a public rejection and it's uh, you don't have a sense. You don't know that. Oh, maybe years later, you'll emerge out of it uh, uh, successful. And the reason it's important to say that is because, at least in my case, I had tremendous doubt at the time about, uh, could I make a contribution in politics? Would I ever succeed at any level in doing that? And young folks listening to the podcast, I want them to to uh, hear that. Because a lot of times you see people, they've succeeded and you think, did they have those doubts? Did they go through those hesitations? And my guess is most of them had those extraordinarily vulnerable moments uh, where, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders lost four times before he ran, won for anything. Losing for forces you to reflect on your weaknesses and reflect about uh, why a constituency may not have elected you. And I have such a great constituency with tremendous values uh, that I— uh, I thought, okay, if, they're, if they don't have the confidence in me, there
0: must be some collective wisdom to that. Or maybe I should evolve a little. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In 2016, yes. you ran against an incumbent again, again. In Mike and the interesting thing is you came back as this evolved candidate. Yes. Uh, and you won overwhelmingly. I did. A big victory. I ran from the outskirts.
1: I ran I, I mean, I always supported these things, but I ran on a platform now emphasizing a lot of the progressive positions I ran explicitly endorsing Medicare for all I ran on uh, Robert Reich's plan at the time for tuition-free college. I endorsed Bernie Sanders in the primary because of his stance on superdelegates and his stance on foreign policy. Partly, it was also sort of, this is my last hurrah. My wife and I had said, okay, if this doesn't work out, we'll do something else in our lives. So I ran with probably the same, not quite the same boldness as 2004, but pretty pretty close, uh, where I said, let me just run on what I believe. And lo and behold, we won a, a, a 61-39 victory and one where they still I still talked about innovation and entrepreneurship and my passion for uh, technology to make the world better. But it was balanced with this genuine progressive vision.
0: So then you get out to D.C. and you arrive with Donald Trump. Not really the way most people expected
1: Or or as as my brother put it, 2016 was the year anyone could get elected.
0: (laughs) You and Donald Trump. Uh, But rather different guys. So this is where it gets interesting because you come in at a time of incredible turmoil and Democrats trying to figure out who they are and what they are. And uh, you bring all of these issues you're concerned about. Right. But you look around that and you say, well, you know what? I'm going to end a war or try and end a war in Yemen. For me, it was a few
1: reasons. I had spent a lot of time thinking about issues for 10 years before I uh, got to Congress. So I was ready to make a, an impact on foreign policy. And I had Yemeni constituents come to me and talk about this and I about the potential famine in, in Yemen. And of course, it struck me partly because my grandfather, I mean, the famine in West Bengal was one of the worst famines in human history. Three million people died because of Churchill and uh, the British's indifference, Uh, and part of me said, "Well, certainly uh, we have as a society evolved, and America can't be indifferent if there's going to be a famine of that kind of gigantic scope." And then the peace groups came to me and said, "Look, Yemen uh, is—it's critical that we have leadership. We've been refueling Saudi planes; they've been bombing." I know you worked for the Obama administration and respect President Obama, but uh, uh, this policy unfortunately started in the Obama administration, uh, and a lot of people have been reluctant to speak out. Because of that, we need someone willing to lead. And, you know, the only way as a freshman you get to lead usually uh, is if no one else wants to. And so uh, I was not their first choice to, to have a War Powers Resolution introduced, but I was willing to do it. And I then started to talk to former Obama administration officials uh, who candidly were uh, regretted the decision. And uh, we finally then uh, introduced this resolution. A lot of the priest groups got involved. Uh, you, Of course, the nation and you were writing about this, but for the longest time, we didn't get anyone uh, to cover it. Writing about Yemen was basically sacrificing your ratings. I mean, I'm not going to tell you with the names of journalists who said to me, Roa, we can't write an article about this or uh, we can't have you on TV to talk about this, but we'll retweet what you're doing because we care about what you're doing. Uh, we just are, we're, are, we're tied, uh, our hands are tied. And then, of course, I went to, to Bernie Sanders uh, after we made some progress in the House, and he took an incredible risk and he introduced the War Powers Resolution. He was the only senator willing to do it, And it gave it so much legitimacy because you need someone of his stature uh, to capture the attention of the nation. And once he did, uh, it did uh, capture people's attention. And then we fought together for two years, reintroducing the resolution until we achieved a historic victory. First time in the history of the country that a war powers resolution has passed the House and the Senate that's not to be underestimated. Uh, this sets a precedent to standing up against unconstitutional wars, against interventionism abroad for the future.
0: We were talking previously, and, and you said that uh, of all the Dylan song, Bob Dylan songs, the one that struck you as masters of war. Yeah. One of the things that you were pointing out was that you liked it because it, it talked about... The defense industry contractors, the defense contractors who are profiting
1: often from wars, and that was the most egregious in the case of Yemen, to tie it back. I mean, you have American arms being sold to the Saudis, being used to bomb kids in Yemen. And these weapons, actually, the Saudis are uh, giving to al-Qaeda in Yemen and being used against our troops. And Dylan, as, as only he could, says, well, who's making money of this? Yeah, we've got to blame the politicians and we've got to blame some of the policymakers. But what about those who are profiting off of this? That is sickening. And uh, we need to really think in this country about the overinflated defense budgets and why we need to have uh, a reallocation of those resources. I, I introduced a, an amendment in this Congress to freeze defense spending at Trump levels in 2018, that is about $120 billion more than Obama, $717 billion, to freeze it at that. Trump's budgets have almost $100 billion, and, and this budget has $150 billion for an overseas war contingency fund. It's a fund to fight future wars. And I lost that committee vote 7 to 26. I couldn't get the majority of Democrats on the budget committee to agree that we need to freeze defense level spending at Trump's 2018 budget. And I guess my question is, how can you be against pointless wars, endless wars, interventionism,
0: and vote to continue to fund it? Obviously, there needs to be a change, I would argue, at the presidential level somebody other than Donald Trump. But it's also a challenge to change the Democratic Party, to make the Democratic Party into something different. You're backing Bernie Sanders for president. I am. And it strikes me that a part of why you are backing him isn't just personality or that, it's also really trying to to move this thing. You also were the one sitting member of Congress who gave sympathy to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign for Congress back in 2018. Um, so, you clearly have in your head some idea for where the Democratic Party ought to go. Where is it? We need to
1: have a clear moral vision for both our foreign policy and economic policy and policy of, uh, on racial justice. And I think we take our inspiration from you know, Dr. King's standard uh, against militarism uh, for economic justice, and for racial justice. What does that mean in each account? I would argue on foreign policy it means restraining our interventions overseas, understanding we don't need combat troops in 17 countries, reinvesting that those resources in free public college, in technology, artificial intelligence, in infrastructure that's actually going to build the innovative capacity of this country. On economic justice, it means making sure everyone has basic economic dignity, that if you're in a small community, if you're in a rural community, if you're in a community of color, that you feel some equity or stake in the technology revolution, that you just aren't satisfied being a consumer of technology, that you actually get to be part of the production of the new economy. Here is where I think sometimes our democratic thinking has not been enough, We are very, very thoughtful about once an economic system creates maldistribution of wealth, thinking about how we redistribute it. But we need to pay attention to why that system is excluding people to create that maldistribution in the first place. How do we create equity predistribution for people to have economic opportunity, wealth creation possibilities, regardless of geography uh, or race or gender? And then the final point is racial justice. Uh, we still have a long way to go. We have a long way of, to go when it comes to the accumulation of wealth. I mean, the statistics are uh, staggering. I think I read somewhere Sandy Darity's work that uh, black households have about seven cents uh, to the dollar of white households and wealth. Think about how many black households are going to benefit from the Uber IPO. Probably not that money. The tech economy and revolution is actually creating even a bigger racial wealth gap. We need to think about police violence. I'm working with uh, Lacey Clay on a bill on police violence uh, that comes out of California and the Stefan Clark case. Every other major industrialized country says force has to be a last resort. We're the only country that has a reasonableness standard, that if you think that someone has a cell phone and you had a reasonable conclusion that your life was at risk, you can shoot that person. In other countries, you have to adopt a standard that says force is a last resort. You have to exhaust every other option. Lacey Clay and I are introducing legislation to make that uh, the standard in the United States. So how then to put it all together? I believe... It very deeply, going back to where the conversation began, uh, in my grandfather's vision, in the, our founding vision in Philadelphia, that we are at a unique moment in American history, that for the first time, you have a nation that has people from literally every corner of this planet. And think how extraordinary that is, John, when you think in 1911, the immigration commission of the United States said that people coming from India were the least desirable race to ever immigrate into the United States. And a hundred years later, because of the civil rights movement, because of so many uh, pioneering social movements, we are in a Congress that has four Indian-Americans that have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and People from so many different Walks of life. We have the opportunity in this country to do something historic to become the first Multicultural multiracial pluralistic democracy in the history of the world the question is whether we're going to rise to that moment to achieve that we need to have restraint in our foreign policy. We need to have economic equity for every community. And we need to work towards greater racial justice. And the reward will be that this may be our contribution to not just American history, but human history, to become that model of what Lincoln prophesied, a, a nation re- literally not of blood, uh, but based on uh, basic ideals that is working towards a less- just and lasting peace.
0: Rokana, thank you so much you. for joining us. Join us next week as we take the next left with Texas Judge Franklin Bynum. He's a jurist who sits on the Harris County Court bench, but he's taking on some of the biggest issues in the country, including cash bail. And prison abolition. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner Evoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhoopel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna. You can check that out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.